and welcome to yet another episode of the Dice Are Screaming Podcast. Oh, oh. I'm Randy. I'm Mike. Yeah, that was Mike hollering over there. <laughs> so yeah, welcome. Uh, it's another uh, Tuesday, so we got some topic for you. Topic Tuesday, yeah. Yeah, so. this this will all be you know fairly formal and professional when we get to that part. No early kimono opening, Uh-oh. so you know we'll, we'll, I'll keep that to myself. Yeah. Well, they probably already know because they read the intro. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. You know, we we know. If, if we give away. Title, yeah, we we've already done the big reveal, but uh, you know, I, I can't let the kimono flutter for nothing. Uh. We like we like to uh, pretend here that at the Dice of Screaming podcast that we actually have some pretense of professional presentation. seriously you expect that from the unlicensed proctologist of gaming podcasts gaming analysis from where the sun don't shine oh Oh. Oh, sweet Desna oh yeah the only thing worse is that after we're done with you the real doctor comes in and goes who were those guys (laughs) yeah yeah, we have no idea. Somebody put out an APB. <laughs> that can't possibly have been legal. Oh. Yep. <laughs> Living on the wild side. All right. So, yeah, uh, unlicensed proctology. Uh, yep. That's what you get here at the Dyson Screen Podcast. High quality comedy shared around the office cooler tomorrow. Okay. So, uh, we got some call ins tonight. Uh, Jason, as always, is calling in. So, thanks a lot, Jason. So, we're going to put you up on the air. But first, it's Joey Richter with sports. No, no I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> it's Joey Richter calling in from the Wheeler Woe Show. Joey. Joey. All right, and uh, so we'll get right to it. Take it away, Joe. What's going on, boys? It's Joe. I got to call and give Mike mad props. Sir, you are impressive. Coming up with a new term each and every episode to call you dudes is it's it's art it's a masterpiece i think indolent shepherds was the last one and that is just such just such a great image dude fantastic it's hard work i know uh back in towards the beginning of our show i started doing a thing where i picked two like kind of lesser used adjectives to call the players before each of our episodes and now i'm stuck doing that and i'm starting to straight scrape the bottom of the barrel adjectives are finite (laughs) anyway boys great stuff i hope you're doing well randy sounded a little bit salty on that last episode not too much not too much just a little bit of salt to add to the flavor anyway boys peace out all right well thanks joe uh (laughs) (laughs) that's true yeah we have a little uh well first off thank you very much uh you know we both work on uh weird oddball things and i i guess you know like the the one consistency is that it should be a little off the wall but uh almost like a backhanded compliment um you know that that sense of okay well you know it's cool in a weird kind of way, uh, but not that cool. You know, just yeah, a little discomforting, a little weird, a little, little off of center. Uh, you know, like the mishung painting. <laughs> <laughs> but, see, there you go. But there's... hey, we are the finite adjective of gaming podcasts. <laughs> the barrel scrapings. <laughs> the bottom of the barrel. What, the residue that resides at the bottom of the barrel. There we the go. Vegemite sandwich. Okay, there you go. See, we already given you good material right there, Joe. It writes itself. It really does. But as for saltiness, no, that's not true saltiness. We we have a lot of inside jokes left over from like 30-odd years, and we try to keep them from intruding into the podcast because no one will get them. But there are some eye rolls because I, uh, I will take a story. I will place it on a horse. I will ride that horse and that story for all they are worth. Uh, when it seems like they can't go any further, I will then proceed to soundly drub the horse and the story until at last the horse founders. I will then continue to flog the dead horse and the story uh, until even the bones are cracked into dust. Uh, and Randy knows this. It's true. I mean, Oh, no. I was just... Uh, actually, I was salty about the... Uh, Von Dom stuff, but you know, I I have kind of a uh, a longstanding uh, dislike of the actor, not based on him personally. I'm probably sure that uh, he's a, a human being like us all who does things that uh, tend to p- piss people off in their own due measure, just like I do. But 
I dislike the fact that there's the cultish behavior of how good he was almost before there was a Chuck Norris joke or meme running around the interwebs. People would talk about how well, talented Claude Van Damme was, and then you go see a movie, and you're like, "Okay, there's, he's no Bruce Lee." Let's let's. Oh well, uh, yeah, yeah. How come there's no funny memes about Bruce Lee? Because Bruce Lee is no joke. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> he would not want to face that man in a in a personal one on one. But nonetheless, uh, so yeah, just as you, uh, indolent shepherd, outstanding in the field. <laughs> Unlicensed proctologist with the worst feeling <laughs> leaves you with that feeling like, who were those guys? Because the real doctor walks in. <laughs> huh? Do you know those guys? Nope. We're out of here. And uh, tearing off in our Buick. <laughs> uh, the different lots. colored doors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of other things. So, yeah, um, we appreciate that you do that. It is kind of a collaborative effort. Mike uh, delivers most of the notes. Sometimes uh, I throw a few ideas in there, and sometimes it takes me a minute or two to work them out. But every once in a while, I just, uh, just uh, preempt them and add my own. So, But Mike is the man. He's the uh, He's got all the timing. I'm just the... Uh, just here. I don't know what I do here, but I'm just here. <laughs> you provide important stability. Huh. You realize that, like, you're the weight bags to my Zeppelin? Okay. <laughs> I don't know if that's being flattering, but I what? appreciate the sentiment. Do you, yes. do you realize how useless a Zeppelin would be without any ballast of any kind? Good. I mean, it's just floating around out there, no idea where the frick it's going, just... I would be all over the freaking place if somebody didn't nail one of my feet to the floor and keep me like in the zone uh, doing this properly. <laughs> so yeah, I guess maybe I, I do. That. I mean, if you really want, like, you could just put a couple of cups of coffee into me and let me go, and it'd be like Beavis getting his hands on a latte for the first time. <laughs> I, cornholio, It's like I think I'm going to actually. Just to take a wild uh, ride of my own, I think uh, we're going to start linking some some of the Saturday Night Live stuff. It's making its way to YouTube with the Land Sharks. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, a little homage and hamburger, to the cheeseburger, hamburger, cheeseburger, and cheap Pepsi. No Coke, Pepsi. How about a plate of eggs and some hash browns? No, no. Uh, you want a hamburger? Yeah, if you remember that one, it's subtle. But like a car bomb. Yeah, yeah, that's how we are. All right, so uh, and still, you know, uh, it'll never loom as large in my memory as we are killer bees from Mexico. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, those yeah. days, and the Mister Bill show. But anyway, also uh, speaking oh, of Mister no, Bill show, Mister Bill, <laughs> uh, Joe's been getting around, man. He's all over the place lately on podcasts, so. Oh, yeah. Bravo. Yeah, so keep going, Joe. Yeah, run with it. And one day we'll be there. Oh, probably not. But anyway. <laughs> on second, nobody wants us. On to Jason. Yeah, but we're Jason out here lingering. Wait, where's Mike? Okay. Yeah, so Jason's uh, got some thoughts for us, so we'll just turn it over to Jason. I'm split forth, and then we'll take him to task afterwards. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Sharpen <Take>. the knives. <laughs> take it away, Jason. Hey guys, Jason here. Hopefully the volume's not as bad this time. Maddie's asleep, I think, so you shouldn't hear him in the background. I was going to call, not to defend Cyborg, but, I mean, come on, Cyborg was a canon film. You have to love canon films. And it's a film where the names of the characters are taken from guitars. But, yeah, Cyborg's pretty bad. I remember seeing it in the theater. I didn't walk out. And it's not the worst movie I've seen. But the cyborg's not good either. Um, don't let Dave Alder to Deep Percentile Podcast hear me say that, though. Anyhow, what I the other thing I wanted to call is Arduin. It's got to be one of my very favorite things from early days. I really love that setting, and it, it's really horrible that that IP has fallen to where people can't buy it legally right now. Because that's such a great IP. Um, actually, looking back, I don't... I don't know how playable Arduin really was. We picked, you know, we like took the magic items like the Ring of Bart or the Bart Ring or whatever it was, you know, the Bay Area Rapid Transit Ring for the Ring of Speed and stuff like that. 
and, and we took we took things out of Arduin, but I don't. We never played it. We never played his you know Hardgrove system, but yeah, I, I don't know. But it is neat, and, and I just enjoy looking over those old books. And, and I would love to be able to buy a legal, you know, new copy legal. Um, but I, I think the last folks that had that IP have disappeared into the you know netherworld. And anyway. I'm, I'm getting morose here. I'm, I'm going to let you go. I enjoyed your episode, though. And, and yeah, the new newer rules are a lot of times a lot more polished. But I don't know that they really bring that much. All the rules are playable. And ultimately, the thing that matters, it, it's that relationship between all the players. And, yes, the GM is a player. So everybody at the table, it's that relationship. The best group in the world can take the worst set of rules in the world and have a great time. And the you know, the a, a group that doesn't gel together can have the best set of rules in the world. It's still not going to run as smoothly as that group that gets along with each other. You two could take any set of rules and, and you'd have fun with them and you'd have a good time. There are some rule sets that you prefer and some rule sets that work better with your GM style or play style. But realistically, ultimately, it's that social dynamic with a group that matters much more than any rule set. And the plethora of rules we have is more of an economic thing than a necessity. One, it's the fact that we all like to create and and rules and RPGs bring out the DIY in us, right? But I'm going to let you go now. Talk to you later. Bye. All right, Jason. Thanks a lot, man. Uh, oh, well, uh, nobody's asking you to defend Cyborg if you like. I mean, I kind of forgot that they were all named after guitars, so good for you for paying attention. I mean, uh, Mike walked out, so... Yeah, I, I, uh, I, well, I did walk out at the end. I did not catch that they were named after guitars. Uh, to me, that did not actually salvage much. Um, <clears throat> you know. There's absolutely... Yeah, I, I don't think there's beyond, any right. That might have been the high point of the movie uh, in terms of strength. Yeah, I think that that's the only thing <laughs> you could possibly do. <laughs> Van Dammit. It's uh, an Alan Smithy production. Oh, oh my God, I think it might be. Yeah. Was it? I don't have. I have no clue. It should be. It probably should. You know, be. Dune did not deserve that ignominy. Uh, but uh, even like, yeah, that you know, Lynch did some superior work on that. Yeah, he sure did. It wound up being uncredited. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, not that cyborg. Said, Arduin Grimoire, a great reference. There is one of those wonderful antique classics of the Dragon Magazine advertisement era. Uh, a game I did not get to play. Yeah, that the, I always looked at with the me. Ring of Bart. <laughs> what the Ring of Bart? The area rampant transport. Yep, we're just going to spend charge off that, and we're back to the castle. Whoa, wow, that's really fast. Yes, the Ring of Bart. <laughs> when you need to get around the kingdom, this is what you use. Yeah, Arduin Gormor, man. Um, there's so much good stuff about that. Um, I think it was better played not as its own game, but as a book of ideas, rather than any particular. I don't think there was anything outstanding about the system. Uh, I mean, I, I think the critical hit tables were pretty cool. Oh, um, they yeah. did add some variety to it. I like Frank's in that, the uh, insect men. But, of course, Thrykreen were uh, right there. Um, what is it? You could also play a Bolo tank. And Technomancers were a thing in there. So, you bolo know. Bolo tank? A Bolo tank. Yeah, kind of a, a self aware tank. Think Ogre. Wow. Yeah. You're not Man. far from it, but uh, definitely well, uh, extreme. But I'm not sure that it was. Uh, I'm not sure that it's a campaign or just a game onto itself. It was uh, sustainable. I think it had some really good ideas, and this definitely uh, worth plundering some a few things. I'm kind of with uh, Jason on wanting to get my paws on a copy of it to really sit down and give it a good read because I never had a copy of it. It's a game I did not get to play, so in full disclosure, you know. Yeah, I had a couple of the supplements. That's about it. Um, huh. Yeah, but it, it's a good game. I, I definitely would recommend it for uh, old school nostalgia uh, stroke offs because it's really good. To get you back in that that vibe back then. You know, oh yeah, it? it will. I mean, I I can imagine that it would almost have to by default put you in that eighties mindset, mm-hmm. uh, like nineteen eighty six, nineteen eighty eight zone. Well, uh, way before that, really, I mean, like early eighties, man. Wow, they were like eighty three, eighty four. I they were in the seventies. No, eighty one, eighty two, eighty three. 
Yeah, it was more like a kind of a derivative of Dungeons and Dragons, from what I understand. But huh. again, not a lot of people seem to have played it, but a lot of people know about it. So, well, I like their sense of humor. Yeah, you know, as soon as you're telling me about Ring of Bart, Bay Area Rapid Transit. <laughs> Back to the castle. I love that already. Yeah, it's kind of got its own. <laughs> like, I totally want this. You know, what, Bart? Is he a great wizard in your world? No, it's a reference to the Bay Area rapper Transport. <laughs> There's a Bart system in Lansing, Michigan here, so. Oh, well, of course, we don't have Bay Area. No, it's, Lansing, but it's the Bart. Just give Bart a call and he'll come pick up. Uh, no, I, uh, I gotta say, uh, that is a classic game reference. That is one that like takes me back to looking at, you know, well, <laughs> tragically dog-earing all my ancient copies of Dragon Magazine. Like, yeah. I still have a few laying around somewhere that, <clears throat> honestly, <laughs> have seen better centuries. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yeah, they've been used like a post horse, put away wet. Yeah, that oh. just, wow. Riding the circuit, you know. Yeah, but... Uh, to clarify on the back part of that is, of course, as he says, that and I don't think that there's anything um, specific about rules that are more polished. I think that when you have a good presentation, and we were just talking before we got started, I have about five games that I put as premieres. And, of course, Dungeons & Dragons, I think uh, RuneQuest, Call of Cthulhu, Basic Role-Playing, that's all one. I also think uh, very heavily uh, Traveler and Champions, because they weren't. Uh, those three systems there were not level based. They were all everybody was like doing level stuff. But a positive attitude, you're you're dead on. A positive attitude is more powerful than any. Yeah, system, and any, you know, any we style. were just talking about Honey Heist, and uh, I did get a uh, direct <laughs> message about that. Is that people were like, "Oh yeah, Honey Heist, uh, yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun." I'm like, "Yeah, it's a one page role playing game. I mean, it, the mechanics yeah. are just two die six, you know, roll under, and you know." Fun will be had if you go into it planning to have fun. Uh, which I, I should mention some of the other games from uh, cheap-ass games, like Biting Off Heads. Yeah, Biting Off Heads seem basically a good way to use Fireball Island. Yeah, but, uh, dinosaurs racing to be the first to hurl themselves, themselves into, into volcano. the volcano. Instead of trying to get down, you're going back up. <laughs> and, of course, Kill Dr. Lucky. and uh, Which, just take a game of Clue. Turn it backwards. And, and you know reverse the core concept so that uh, you are the cast of characters and you're trying to be the person who commits the murder. Yeah, because it's always good that you... Dr. Are... Lucky is an a-hole and totally has it coming. You all write on an index card why you want to kill Dr. Lucky, what he's done to you to cause you to come to this conclusion in your life, you know, risking life and limb and your reputation to go forward and kill him. And of course... You know, as you're doing so, you know, the, some of the stuff you read is the after the game is un, is played and the victor is, of course, all right, finally killed Dr. Lucky. That bastard had it coming. And everybody reveals why they hated Dr. Lucky. <laughs> he slept with my wife. He ran over my dog. <laughs> but yeah, he they're, ate they're... the last sandwich in the refrigerator. Really? That monster. <laughs> uh, or the classic. Uh, I had a, a, the quick card game. Uh, give me the brain. Yeah. Uh, where it's basically your zombie, uh, zombies working in a fast food restaurant filling orders, and there's only one brain to go around, and whoever is in control of the brain at the right circumstances to end the game wins because they get to go out for the weekend and use the brain. Uh, and so the, the objective is to A, acquire the brain, and B, uh, end the game while in possession, which is not as easy as it sounds. The, the little cards are set up where you're filling orders for customers. You have to get rid of all your cards. Yeah, you have to be the first one. Uh, and they have you got to possess the brain and have no cards left in your hand at the end of your turn. And they have these marvelous orders like, uh, what is it? Um. <laughs> the Patriarch. <laughs> Oh, yeah, one of practically everything. It's got a chicken patty, it's got two burger patties, cheese, lettuce, uh, of course, the bun, fries, and two drinks. Ah. Oh, and cheese. And then, of course, the fish sandwich and three large drinks. 
The old man and the sea. <laughs> Endless supplies of water and also trips to the bathroom. <laughs> no, but those are games that we have had a great time playing. And, you know, I referenced them without any shame whatsoever, even though they're not typical RPGs. They feed to your primary point, which is the real fun that I was having a great time with a positive attitude and a bunch of friends. And really, like, I came expecting to laugh and have a great time. And you know what? I did. That's right. Not sorry one bit. Sorry. Right, well, uh, we beat these subjects to death, so we're going to uh, give a quick break. I so logged you... another horse. Uh, well, that's Four all horses. right. And uh, we'll be right back. So thanks a lot, Jason. And uh, keep those calls coming in, bud. And take care. So uh, we're going to do a little advertisement and be right back after the break. Eleven. All right. So... <laughs> We're back after the break, and uh, hope you're still here with us. If not, well, this makes us kind of all fruitless. So <laughs> we've all worked for nothing. You can't be blamed for fleeing while the time. No, was you, right. you can't. <laughs> Again, honestly, I, I question the good sense of the rest of you who didn't have the, the good sense to run while they're, you're like their backs are turned. Make a break for it. Yeah, they're not paying attention. <laughs> you ever listen to this show and feel like you're hung upside down in the ogre's cave and they're just like, you know, working the skin and knives to get them extra sharp and you're hoping that like they'll hear a noise and be too busy dealing with that for a minute so you can slip out the back? It's kind of how it is around here, so uh, we don't take it all. It's too late now. It's dinner time. So That's right. So into the you're... pot you go. In for a penny, in for a pound, and, well, even more. So, you were overcharged. <laughs> all right, so uh, tonight's topic. All right, so we promised to have a good topic tonight, and I think we have a good one. Uh, this is a good one. I like it. It's myth-building. Mythology, myth-building, and gaming. Ah, I, yeah. I think this is, this is a pretty worthwhile one because we talk a lot of campaign stuff. You know, we talk a lot about the uh, deities and gods. And how they play a role in your campaign, as well as how you should incorporate them. But uh, tonight we're going to spend just a little bit more in-depth look and time looking into how you create gods and populate your campaign world. And use them to not only make your campaign world seem more fantastical, but also help build into a history that suggests more gameplay and ideas. Yeah, you know, the gist of so many role-playing games... There are a lot that echo classical mythology. However, that having been said, there is a great deal of fantasy fiction and some science fiction literature and gaming literature that develop completely new mythologies, entirely new background stories, entirely different deities, uh, and articles of faith and human conduct uh, built around those ideas, uh, basically an, an altered pattern of development, you know, quite different from the one that resulted in what we think of as today's modern world. Uh, but that's, you know, the nature of fiction itself. I mean, it's extrapolating from something and then, hey, let's shake it up a little, go somewhere different. It's what makes it interesting. It's what makes people read. But campaigns, uh, a great many DMs, uh, and even, you know, people who are playing but haven't DM'd yet, uh, have a creative bent, and they want to create something new. And so we're just going to take a peek at, you know, deconstructing, how do you build a brand new mythology? Uh, you know, what constitutes a mythology? Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb. All right. I'd like to go for an opener here. Go right uh, in. We'll go to the, the dawn of human history here, uh, you know, in, in the real world, the, the true origins, so to speak, of mythology for us uh, begin with some of the very earliest experiences that humans have. Uh, and this is kind of universal to every culture, wherever you go on Earth. Uh, you will find that they built their mythologies in whatever culture around what they had to deal with every day. So when you're building a campaign and you want to build a new campaign world, what kind of place in it, or what kind of place is it, and what kind of things are in it? 
What is the weather like? Uh, there are obvious things that I, I think most campaigns would include. There would be a sun and or moons. Uh, and those would be things that... Maybe people, suns. Yeah. More than one sun. More than one moon. Uh, could be anything like that. But those would be primal elemental forces that people would look upon in the skies and be awestruck or terrified by. Uh, and so those would be first influences. Uh, in terms of totemic or you know animal shamanism uh, or animism and mm -hmm. shamanism, uh, there would be the creatures that were around them, which would be obviously either dangerous predators or benevolent herbivorous creatures that are your food. And you could have either a uh, fearful relationship with the dangerous predator, where it's a source of admiration uh, and respect <laughs> from a nice safe distance. <clears throat> the or, ghost bear or smoke jaguar. Yeah. Or you might have the you know herbivore like the bison, uh, where, okay, so it's not actually a threat, but it's beloved because it's such an important source of, you know, food and materials. Uh, even in an ancient world, you know, where you may have very few resources available, uh, it would be remembered even hundreds, if not thousands of years later, with great reverence and awe. Uh, and then you have the environment, uh, which can be terrifying at times. Storms. The very popular concept, storm gods and goddesses, exist in so many different cultures because storms were these powerful forces over which people had zero control. And so they anthropomorphized them and gave them a personality. They assigned, you know, like a tempestuous person uh, to that event. And that explains why things like, well, the storm god is angry today. And it takes away some of the fear of that, you know, primal existing in the night of the world. Uh, and so that would carry on, again, thousands of years later, mm -hmm. and have a presence. And then... Seasonal you, changes. I was about to say. Exactly, oh. dude. You're right on point. You get to stuff like the advancement of technology, and inevitably people come to agriculture... And ocean faring, where they're getting food and travel from the sea, uh, or from rivers or waterways and what have you, uh, and agriculture, where food is coming from the land. And at that point, the seasons become incredibly important. Uh, you know, I'd like you to take for a moment. I mean, oh, I, I mentioned right. the Sumerians uh, in particular. I, I'm, well, I also I'm, think like rivers and... Um... Uh, also, the winds tend, uh, because winds tend to be, uh, if you look at this early Sumerian, a lot of the wind gods, the southern wind was seen as a uh, a bit of a fickle change, bringing with it uh, pestilence, uh, sometimes famine, you know, too much heat okay. where there's the crops. So the southern wind god or spirit or demon was seen as a much more uh, angrier and less beneficent, whereas the eastern and northern winds were kind of like, oh, they were fair and more pleasant and easier going. And the western wind was kind of the lord of them all. When it did come, it was rare, and it usually brought fortuitous change, or, you know, more rain, some sudden storms, or sometimes, a, you know, too much rain. Now, and, here's, here's one you're expert on. Now, oh. tell me what the greatest enemy of all, the most terrifying foe of all of North... Norse mythos is what is their most dreaded oh. enemy? Oh well, uh, well, there's a lot of them, uh, but uh, real life or imagined, it would be nothing greater than ice itself. Yeah, the, the snow. environment, the actual like the, the freezing of exactly. lakes, the uh, freezing of fjords. Uh, their end of the world is titled what? Well, Ragnarok, the thimble winter. Yeah, the winter ashes. You know, no moon. Yeah, these are things that people lived in dread of. I mean, they, they had an incredibly hard life in an incredibly uh, arduous and difficult atmosphere. And the mythologies they built around Yeah, that now notice the southern, guy, the southern winds brung comfort, repose, and yeah. indolence. You to know? Them, so they were much that meant, more kind. 
Things are awesome. Right. My knickers aren't frozen shut. <laughs> it didn't clink the last time I peed. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> Not to put too fine a point on it. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the atmosphere in which people dwell in the ancient world shapes the mythologies that they build around what they see, <clears throat> what they experience, what they fear, what they love. Uh, and obviously, here's another one. Uh, it doesn't take much imagination for this one, uh, but uh, procreation. <laughs> uh, eros, whether it's in a more affectionate state where people are uh, trying to reflect an appreciation for affection itself, for love, for connection between humans, mm -hmm. or simple earth mother procreation, uh, childbirth, you know, at first we were few, and thanks to this, we are now many, uh, as opposed to dying out and shrinking in numbers. Uh, it was incredibly important when you didn't have a particularly large population of people. You know, if you're talking about a fragile group of just two or three hundred souls, uh, there is a steep risk of, like, one terrible event uh, effectively wiping out everyone you know and leaving nothing behind. Uh, that reality was, yeah, it made uh, procreation cults and early, for instance, uh, Venus of Willendorf, things like that, sure, uh, incredibly important. Uh, those were, I would go so far as to say, prevalent in so many cultures that it just defies description. You can't assess it to just, oh, this one culture is the only one that had that. No, this is one of those ones where it was pretty important to everybody for a very long time. Oh, yeah, and you could definitely look at the gods of fire and earth as well as the ones of the sea and of the air being in conflict with one another, also uh, being detrimental or profitable. For most part, um, I think that humanity has always viewed the sea as an enemy, or at least antagonistic. I don't think that there's... Anybody who's spent a lot of time out on the seas and even around here on the Great Lakes knows for certain how quick the weather can change and how suddenly you can go from peaceful, tranquil, everything's fine, to suddenly uh, absolute terror. Yeah, I mean, you can go from waves three inches high where they're just lapping along and your little boat is, uh, you know, just uh, skipping along the waves and we're having a nice day. And you know what? <laughs> Uh, all of a sudden, that wind picks up hard, and before you can ever make it back to shore, you are bouncing along on the top of white caps, getting tossed. Yeah, and I'm like, just, and this is just Lake Michigan, and yeah. uh, I spent some time on the Pacific Ocean, and I can, oh, well, of course, it was uh, Uncle Sam's uh, misguided <laughs> children with that one, but I will say that uh, we're a lot more in comfort than we were on the Great Lakes, but yes, I have had a couple occasions of sheer terror on the Great Lakes, not knowing if we'll be able to make it back and land in time before the storm catches up to you. But yeah, those primal forces terrified people. Um, and the respect... Well, there you go. I wouldn't say we live in terror of being in the Great Lakes state. We don't live in terror of them, but we definitely respect the ability of something to turn suddenly and being wary of your environment. Oh, very Even just like going in the forest, too. I mean, if you just look around, no wonder the gods of the forest are a mysterious and somewhat brooding lot. You can't see very much. And, you know, it's a joke. You can't see the forest for the trees. Ha ha. Yeah, I hear you. Well, but, and look at, you know, Hearn the Hunted, uh, or mm -hmm. sorry, Hearn the Hunter, or uh, the legendary Green Man uh, in, you know, kind of Celtic. You, you do feel like you're trespassing. Yeah, the, here's this camouflaged figure that like just lurks and can appear out of nowhere. Just one minute it's there, one minute it's not. A uh, little frightening, but that is the nature of, you know, welcome to a deep forest. But if you learn its mysteries, you just like with the sea or the Great Lakes, you learn their mysteries, you learn their signs, you become proficient with them, and you can kind of assign almost a personality to them. At least that's the way I would look at it. I would definitely say that anyone who says, oh, the Pacific Ocean is a calm ocean needs to spend some time out on it. Even on a large vessel weighing thousands and thousands and thousands of tons, the sea still handles it like a toy in the bathtub. <laughs> Pretty much.
Oh, what do you mean? This aircraft carrier weighs 68,000 tons. The ocean does not care about your 68,000 tons. It will bounce it. And no, something you can move that with absolute impunity. And that does make you like, well, if this was just suddenly to tilt over sideways, we'd be in a lot of trouble. Yeah. That, you know. I might have to learn how to swim. <laughs> uh, well, thank goodness shipbuilding has done nothing but go uphill. Over there. Yeah, but... Uh, for a good reason, but... Again, the mysteries, the building of ships and the mastering of crafts, fire, is a destructive force, but yet its mastering, its use, is sometimes seemed to be magical, which is why we assign a lot of the creatures with magic, or with fire, with magical talents of creation, as well as a destructive nature to them. It's true. Uh, but fire is seen as kind of the first controllable element uh, by humanity. You couldn't control the winds. You really couldn't control the water. I mean, you could just barely, you know, fashion something in which to carry it. Uh, you know, and really the earth was there, so whether you played with it or not. But fire uh, could transform everything around you. You know, could make weak things strong and make strong things weak. Uh, it's mm. one of mankind's first tools. So fire figures heavily in early mythology. Uh, and likewise... Following fire, you mentioned crafts, which is a terrific thing to mention because this brings us to the early crafts that were the most important to the survival of people. Uh, whether it was humble things like, oh, for instance, weaving. Okay, which weaving. may not seem particularly important, but if you look at the Norns, the Fates, you know, they're, they're weaving and the, mm -hmm. the skein of thread. Uh, and the cutting... Know, and that's the beginning and ending of lives. You know, they've, they've made an allegory out of this rudimentary process that was part of everyday life. And they've transformed it into something mythic, epic, powerful, and incredibly important to day-to-day -day living. Uh, that, you know, not, not an accidental connection at all. No. So the other crafts, the more complicated crafts, you move into things like the forging of metals, which, again... Big leap forward in people's survivability, their adaptability, their uh, the strength of their agriculture, and the strength of their weapons. So, the, you know, forge gods, and of course, you know, gods of metal, uh, and of fire, and of the making of metal things, immediately start to play heavily in myth as soon as that became possible for humans. I'd also like to just go back to the forest. I think one of the things that uh, we kind of... when We could take all the time in the world and not cover everything that happened oh, yeah. in mythology. But I would also like to go to the forest. Um, the signs of... The hunter is a preternatural. Where a human who is adept at hunting starts to transcend almost... Is the kind of seen as the first hero. Yeah. Knowing the signs... Um, the subtle traces that animals leave behind. And I'm not just talking about the tracks or the spore, but I'm talking about how they weave in and out and how you can spot their tracks. Learning those things is a skill, and it requires observation and patience. The people who can uh, are adept at hunting can almost seem at times otherworldly. And yep. notice that a lot of deities who are of the hunt have that otherworldly essence, that they have transcended into a different... They are view. almost apart from humanity in some respects. Yes. That they've spent too much time in another place, and they stopped being entirely a part of the civilization they came from, and a little part of them resides forever after in the forest. It becomes a place they are more at home and at peace than they will ever be between four walls. So you look at these um, examples that we gave, and we're pretty much hitting early parts, and of course... I'll, I would be remiss if I didn't say that RuneQuest has a lot of this going on right there. And Mike is very on par with the, the Earth cult being of fertility and of firmament and stability. Uh, a lot of Earth deities tend to be female. The very earliest uh, we have of plinths and ancient terragrass are of a feminine figure associated with the Earth. A pregnant female that is important in sustaining the community and the enriching people's lives through beneficence and 
by keeping the peace. And many of these uh, aspects, and I could go on about RuneQuest about it, but I just, everybody knows I like it, but, uh, and doggone ducks aside. If you get a chance, just look through the mythology, the whole idea of the sun god, the light bringer itself, you know, the foe of darkness. That is almost eternal, and I think in any concept, the god of the sun, unless you're in the harshest of conditions in the desert, is a is a wielder of power and is a also a bringer of justice and of goodness, you know, warmth. Now, before I phase in, like, jump into phase two on this, uh, I really want to, like, close it out, even though there's so much left uncovered. Yeah. Okay, there's just... No pun intended with the uh, Earth. Yeah. <laughs> we have not unearthed everything yet. Uh, death. It is finality. It is universal. Yep. Everything that lives, you know, everything that begins has an ending. And it was a terrifying absolute. Uh, like, even from the beginning, the things left behind in graves, even things that might well have been useful to the people who lived, uh, the leaving behind of things was an incredibly symbolic gesture that, you know, like, death was... In in every respect, the end of right here and right now. Uh, but people couldn't let go. And so they believed that there was something coming next. And here are your tools. Here is, you know, your weapon. Uh, here is some wealth. Uh, you know, here is fitting garb. So that wherever you're going next, uh, you will be well regarded. At those attempts... Whether you believe in them or not, that's not the point. The point is that this is how people reconciled their fear of that ending and built it into their mythologies. It became a part of their traditions and a part of their culture and the ways in which they coped with saying goodbye to someone in the here and the now. Uh, so that would be the, the last of the, the big ones. That well, yeah, also Shadow, if you got to talk about the sun, you got to talk about the moon, and also you have to talk about night itself. Yeah. Night brings untold terrors. Okay. <laughs> the night is dark and full, full of, of terrors. terrors. And yeah. it's coming upon you now. Roll initiative. Ah! All right, so, <laughs> so how do you take all these concepts and you transform them into game stats so players can kill them? No. Oh, what you're doing no. is you're now you're working out of... These are kind of if you will, guideposts. They're not rigid, but they're guideposts. Guide, uh, deities serve as guideposts to building your campaign world. They're supports in which you can hang certain concepts that everybody experiences them. Now, whether you have a pantheon like in Pathfinder that all the races worship the same deity, they just see them as different, or whether there are certain gods uh, like in the world of Greyhawk that are just for the elves and just for the dwarves, and for the humans, there are some certain similarities between them. For instance, uh, the elven god of longevity is the closest the elves have to a god of death. Uh, but that elven god is not a god of death and is not seen as unkind, just inevitable. Yes. But, you know. <laughs> Whereas Nero the Reaver, the Reaper, is you know seen as a cruel and almost vicious. Oh, I'm coming to get you. Yeah, he enjoys the death early. because death is so common and prevalent on the world of Greyhawk. Ah, now, when it comes to myth building, you know, we, we've hit some big archetypes, some of the big classic building blocks of mythology, just a few. Uh, but when it comes to myth building, there is no reason for creators, uh, for creatives, to be bound by the pre-existing view of a thing. Now, uh, if you're proposing a brand new culture on a brand new planet with different circumstances... Uh, you Worship know, a shade of color, uh, intelligent shade of purple. <laughs> yeah, I'm saying everything can be up in the wind. And if you have a traditional human mythos uh, from the real world that you kind of like but want to do something different with, go in another direction with it. And maybe everybody's uh, tired of the fickle sea deity. 
you know, have a incredibly benevolent sea deity. Uh, but instead of being incredibly vicious, uh, they exist in opposition. You put two sea deities, and one of them is terrible, and one of them is incredibly benevolent. One is a like Rand and Njord yeah, of the Norse. Exactly. Uh, you know, that's an exception. In many, case, in many cultures, there was only a single deity for the ocean per se, uh, and that deity was often fickle. There is a perfect example of a culture that diverged from that and said, no, no, this is two different entities. Uh, or a primal creation story that involves a different view of a familiar element. Uh, like if you had a place that had a cataclysmic event that was Earth-related, uh, instead of the you know, deity of Earth being seen as dependable and solid and stable... Have that one be the one who is fickle and indeterminate and incredibly cruel at random. We don't even know why everything just sank into a hole in the ground. Jerk. Yeah. Uh, or other... just flies every everything flies apart all the time. Yeah. yeah. Earthquakes. Yeah. What's that about? Earthquakes, volcanoes. Uh, this is just some earth god jerkery right there. I, I don't know what's up with that. Somebody get that guy some lithium. Yeah. And now you can start to use these. Uh, deities as player or not player characters but as characters in your campaign they are the stars of the show if the player characters are of course the main stars these are the ones who set the stage for everybody yeah and the so, conduct of their worshipers the strength of their cults the way in which their faiths uh attempt to expand their influence or how they govern and just as a, they a, see themselves as a benevolent force or as a conquering force uh those myths and those deities help to decide that. Just as a segue here, uh, we use the term cults in the same way that uh, Glorantha RuneQuest does. Oh, yeah. I Without the imagine. negative connotation uh, or uh, chaos cults. Oh, yeah. Cults Snake are usually cults. in... Yeah, we hate them. In my city. <laughs> good for nothing. Uh, uh, yeah, those good for nothing snake cults. Uh, I can't stand them. Uh, yeah, we're just using the term cult as a collection of followers and not as the negative connotation. That, yeah, I do know, not mean that as a pejorative. Jim Jones and the Kool-Aid kids. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Too soon. Uh, not that kind of cult, um, but more like the cult of where this association of worshippers that may not always agree on the same thing, but worship the same God or have enough divergent beliefs that... There's difference in between them, but yet they still have the same background and uh, ancestries towards each other or into the god. Yeah, so you start with your environment. You work your way to the primal forces that are a part of that environment. And then you assign personalities or anthropomorphized yeah. versions of these events and places and phenomena. Uh, and you give them names and... Then, you consider the people that follow them and how they conduct themselves and what they revere and what they fear. Give a thought to that. And now you're starting, you know, once you've done this for a select number of these forces, you've already started to populate your world with really very real-seeming uh, events and people and, well, cultures yeah, and that will resonate can, with your you can players. You have religious nationalism where, like, one nation uh, is incredibly allied to this, you know, potent force. A, like, a, a coastal region would obviously have a much stronger relationship with some kind of sea deity, masculine or feminine in perspective. Uh, but it could also it. be with a volcano. Yeah. Or a fire god. And no matter how you do it, it's going to resonate with your players. And this is the kind of path where I do start to see that being part of uh, part of being a game master is a bit of, uh, like the path of a shaman. It's working, walking many paths, keeping your eyes open and observing and taking note of things and retelling it through the lens of your campaign, through the voice of your particular uh, campaign that you play with your uh, friends and your players on a regular basis. It takes on a meaning and it grows. Oh, that it does. Uh, it becomes, uh, in its way, a uniquely, perfectly valid mythos uh, in its own right uh, that, you know, you carry away from the table 
and the only the people who sat there and experienced it firsthand are, you know, technically knowledgeable in it. Uh, but that that's one of the curiosities of gaming, is that these moments of creativity are pretty commonplace. And that brings me back to something that was mentioned uh, earlier in, in uh, I believe it was Jason's phone call. Hmm. Uh, or it was something that it, it got me thinking about, uh, which is the attitude and the creativity of the gamers, you know, uh, system be damned. Yeah. It's not important what one you're playing. Uh, the creativity and the intention to enjoy yourself have a lot more to do with it. But gaming brings out that creativity. Uh, the best games leave just enough space open, uh, encouraging people to fill in blanks and add their own material and do something that is unique to their table. Uh, and I, I honestly attribute that to D&D's now semi-legendary success. That there was an enormous encouragement in the early game for people to go forth, create, do their own thing, and make something new. Make something that you and your friends will be the only ones you know, to remember. Uh, and a lot of gamers wound up talking with other gamers in the advent of early social media. Uh, and exchanging ideas and experiences that you know were just incredibly varied, uh, new mythologies, new ideas, uh, new articles, publications, and things like that spread this huge diaspora of ideas all over the world. And bless you, <laughs> diaspora. Yeah. <coughs> all right. But well, um, so yeah, we owe a big nod to D and D for that. that we do, and uh, with that, also we're going to have to wrap it up here. Oh yeah, we, we're starting we, to run on on to minutes, so we're going to just wrap it up here. So uh, yeah, we just basically touch base. There's so much to talk about. We may uh, revisit it again and again, as we do with here, because we recycle, and uh, you should too. Recyclosaurus. Ah, uh, watch out! The dreaded Recyclosaurus. Earth now. You better bet your butt. All right, so. With that, uh, we'll bid you adieu. Uh, thank you for listening in. And, of course, if you have any comments or questions, you can get a hold of us on uh, Facebook, on our Dexter Screaming page, or you can uh, download the ink crap and get a hold of us right then and there and leave us a message, and we'll put you on the show, and we'll talk about what you had to say. So, without further ado, may the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya. See ya.